Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. When last we left President Kennedy, it was June of 1961. He was fresh off a successful visit to France. But when he landed in Vienna, Austria, carrying his gray hat in one hand, he was tense for reasons that went beyond his stiff back. Kennedy faced a high-stakes parlay with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, the son of a multimillionaire businessman and graduate of the toniest U.S. college, meeting with Khrushchev, the son of a Ukrainian coal miner who had three years of grammar school. It was the first time the two would meet, leader to leader. Give him hell, Jack, read a placard at the airport when Kennedy arrived. You'll remember, of course, our backdrop, Vienna, the capital of Austria, the, its streets refreshed after the shelling and marching of World War II, welcomed the two main adversaries of the Cold War. The meeting's purported purpose, which is not to say a purported porpoise, which is really just a fake dolphin, the purpose was to lessen Cold War tensions. The two countries had not met since the Soviets downed an American U-2 spy plane in May of 1960. The spy plane incident showed American vulnerability. The failed Bay of Pigs invasion, which had happened even more recently, also demonstrated that America could not work its will everywhere that it wanted. This created a destabilizing fizzle in the atmosphere in Vienna. The stakes were high. Khrushchev spied an opening. His age urged him to gambits, particularly on the question of Germany and Berlin. Moscow wanted Germany under its sway. The U.S. was adamantly opposed. Looming over the whole business was the prospect that the meeting could fail and cauliflower into a crisis like the Berlin blockade of 1948. Okay, we're caught up. On the cusp of President Donald Trump's meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin, we offer part two of our perhaps three-part coverage of Kennedy's famously muddy interaction with the leader of one of America's longest adversaries. The historical point to keep in mind, well, one of them anyway, is that summits are about more than what happens when the two leaders are sharing the same coffee tray. Expectations get set, which establish the conditions for future action. If a leader feels like he has been taken advantage of, he might feel compelled to push harder in the coming weeks in a different context. If close proximity makes a leader conclude his counterpart has a soft underbelly, he might be more aggressive in the future. What happened at Vienna rippled well afterwards, not just through the barbed-wired streets of Berlin, but also into the rice paddies of Vietnam. Have we set the stakes high enough? No? You need a little more mustard on this? Well, here's an excerpt from Professor David Reynolds of Cambridge. Here he did a documentary on the 1961 Vienna meeting. Vienna in 1961 is a rare case of how jaw-jaw can nearly provoke war, war. It was, I think, the most ill-judged encounter of the Cold War. This is the story of how and why a summit can go horribly wrong. Jaja Wawa was my least favorite Star Wars character. And now a word from our sponsor. You are a fan of the Slate Political Gab Fest, I'm sure of it. Well, there is a live show of the Slate Political Gab Fest outside Philadelphia on July 18th. Find tickets at www.slate.com slash live. In May of 1960, a year before Kennedy and Khrushchev would enjoy springtime in Vienna, an international diplomatic crisis erupted. 
The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics shot down an American U-2 spy plane in Soviet airspace and captured its pilot, Francis Gary Powers. President Dwight D. Eisenhower said at first, It was a weather plane gone down, just trying to measure those cumulus clouds, nothing to see here. That was a lie. Of course, the CIA had assured President Eisenhower that the spy plane would have been unrecognizable after the crash and that the pilot had been instructed to kill himself and therefore would be extremely difficult to question. But in one of the most dramatic moments of the Cold War, Khrushchev produced not only the largely intact fuselage of the not-at-all-a-weather plane, but also the fully intact pilot, whose intactness consisted also of working lungs and functioning organs. He was, in short, alive. Eisenhower had to come clean and admit, well, yes, the CIA had been circling overhead snapping pictures for several years, and not of weather patterns. An aside, this revelation by Khrushchev and Kennedy's later revelation during the Cuban Missile Crisis of pictures of Soviet missiles in Cuba were from a time when leaders of the great powers called each other's bluffs in big public moments. This, it might seem, would be a course available to Donald Trump with respect to Vladimir Putin, with the intelligence available about Russian interference in the 2016 election and ongoing Russian interference attempts. However, on the verge of the meeting with the Russians whose ongoing espionage activities are contained in the daily threat assessments the president gets in 2018, nevertheless, the Russians have not gotten a public upbraiding. Instead, at this recording, at a NATO meeting in Brussels, President Trump gave Germany a verbal drubbing, saying that its recent gas deal with the Soviets had made it a Russian captive. A second aside about the U-2 spy plane incident. In our current cyclotron of hyperventilation and outrage and upset, we are at a permanent state of 9 on the register that goes from 1 to 10, which means that we get to 10 very quickly. But imagine if this U-2 thing happened today. A president lying about a failed mission against a key adversary. His critics would collapse from outrage exhaustion. Hot takes would melt the polar ice caps. Vehicular traffic would sit motionless in the streets. Nevertheless, in 1960, this news event happened, and the Republic somehow persisted. However, the U-2 incident did cause a strain in relations. Eisenhower and Khrushchev were scheduled to join the leaders of France and Great Britain at a summit in Paris on May 14, 1960. The issue, same as later in Vienna in 1961 nuclear arms production and testing. Pessimism was in the air as Khrushchev arrived in Paris. On arrival, he denounced certain influential circles, in his words, who were preventing the improvement of the international climate. It was clear that the emotional Russian premier was in an ugly mood. Khrushchev walked out of the meeting not long after it had started, leaving behind him a fragrant trail of raspberries directed at the American president in a tirade in which he said he could not trust Eisenhower. A freeze in relations set in. Thawing that freeze was what the Khrushchev and Kennedy Vienna meeting in 1961 was about. The tundra was not entirely free of road salt when the two met in Vienna, however. On November 9, 1960, after Kennedy had won a narrow victory over Eisenhower's vice president, Richard Nixon, Khrushchev sent Kennedy a note congratulating him. He wrote that he hoped, quote, relations between the U.S. and USSR would again follow the line along which they were developing— in Franklin Roosevelt's time. In response, Kennedy issued the invitation to meet in Vienna. He issued that invitation in February of 1961. Kennedy felt, quote, that if he could just sit down with Khrushchev, the two leaders could work out their interstate conflicts. 
Yet Kennedy's advisors were not of the same opinion. They told him not to meet with Khrushchev so soon after Kennedy's election. The American ambassador to Moscow, Llewellyn Thompson, feared that Kennedy misjudged Khrushchev's personality and intentions. Likewise, Charles Bolin, a U.S. diplomat, worried that JFK underrated Khrushchev's determination to expand world communism. So here we have one of our themes, gung-ho presidents confident as the morning lilies, meeting with wily counterparts. The meeting was set to cover three topics, the production and testing of nuclear weapons, the resolution of the Civil War in Laos and Berlin. In Laos, America and the Soviet Union had been fighting a proxy war. During Eisenhower's presidency, the U.S. backed a far-right-wing conservative government to counter the communist threat of the popular Pathet Lao. The question on the table was whether the two men would let the Laotians determine their future and not press their case by continuing to support one side or the other. But it was Berlin that was most vital to the Soviet leader. Khrushchev had described the status of Berlin as a, quote, bone stuck in the throat and, quote, a sort of cancerous tumor requiring a surgical operation and a, quote, Sarajevo, likely to lead towards another war. Khrushchev told Llewellyn Thompson, the American ambassador at the Ice Capades in Moscow, I just like the fact they were at the Ice Capades, when he was talking about the goal of the, the Vienna summit, he said, Berlin is a festering sore which has to be eliminated. That's a lot of metaphors. It's a rule of diplomacy that when a world leader sprays metaphors like a directional sprinkler, he's really exercised about the issue at hand. Hans Morgenthau said that. Just to remind us all about Berlin, the East and West almost went to war over Berlin several different times during the Cold War. As Khrushchev put it in his journals, the slightest fluctuation in the pressure of the world political atmosphere naturally registered at the point where the forces of the two sides were squared off against each other. That was him describing Berlin. Rather nicely, I should say. After the Second World War, the Allied powers split Germany into four sections, roughly corresponding to the position of the Allies. Berlin, which was 100 miles inside the Russian section, also got the pie chart treatment. The United States, United Kingdom, and France controlled western portions of the city. Soviet Union controlled the eastern sector of Berlin. Although the Soviet zone of occupation surrounded the jointly occupied capital of Berlin, it contained, this is to say the Soviet zone, only about a third of Germany's population and an even smaller percentage of its industrial facilities. Now, why did Stalin go for this arrangement at the end of the Second World War? According to John Lewis Gaddis, the great Yale professor uh, in, in his book, Strategies of Containment, Old Uncle Joe Stalin thought that the socialist East Germany would be a magnet for Germans of the West. So, okay, he'll put together a deal that doesn't give him as much geographical dominance and doesn't have all the industrial parts, but in the competition between the capitalists and the communists, everybody living in the West will come slosh over to the communists because it's a better way of life. Well, that failed. The opposite happened. Between 1945 and 1961, 2.7 million East Germans emigrated from Eastern Berlin to West Berlin. This wasn't just a loss of face, it was an economic drain. And here's a point worth remembering for the final exam or trivia night. Berlin was a test case for the struggle between the East and the West. The two ideologies, examples of each, side by side, who do you choose, A or B? The imperialist dog, consumerist, TV dinner, jazz-fueled, freedom-loving, built-for tough Americans, or the Soviets, whose army, by the way, had done things like systematically rape millions of East German women. The Germans, in this sloshing over to the West from the East, were voting with their feet, and they were picking capitalism. Soviets made a variety of efforts to try to slow this. In 1948 and 49, the Soviet blocked Western supply routes into Berlin, into Western Berlin. The physical suffering 
of two and a half million people in Berlin to try and influence the Allies in their treatment of the Germans and to try to force us out is one which we are unable to accept. And that led to the Berlin airlift. The West delivered goods through a massive aerial rescue, which ultimately was successful in beating back the Soviet attempt. Then in 1958, 10 years later, Moscow tried again, giving the Western powers six months to evacuate West Berlin. That didn't work either. The more the Soviets tried to force a unified Soviet-backed section of Germany, the more the Western powers knew that they had to put another chair against the door to hold off the Soviet advances. West Germany would be a bulwark against the advancing Soviet cause. For the Soviets, the key concern was that the United States would keep a permanent occupancy very close to the Soviet Union, that the U.S. talking about a unified Germany was just was a joke. World War II had taught them to be nervous, of course, about ex- adversaries in such close proximity. And so Khrushchev faced a decision on the eve of Vienna. Close the border between East and West and provoke the West into a conflict. Provoke it into a conflict because the West would decide, hey, Germany is now being roped off by the Soviets, will come fully under Soviet domination, ending the possibility of a unified Germany, unified free Germany in the American view. Um, and so that's something worth fighting for. Or Khrushchev could decide, eh, I'm not going to do it. I'll just kind of let this situation fester. And if that were the case, then you continue to have this brain and economic drain from East to West, making the East very weak and and therefore not much of a stop to the imperialist dogs of the West, if, should they choose to, to march eastward. Okay, let's get to Vienna. Khrushchev arrives in Vienna after a 40-mile ride from Bratislava in Czechoslovakia. Premier Khrushchev arrives in Vienna for the first summit meeting with a U.S. president since the ill-starred conference with President Eisenhower in Paris. It's a smiling Khrushchev who is greeted at the station as he arrives in the fabled city. In a brief speech on the station platform, he said the Soviet Union wanted its relations with the United States to be built on a firm basis of peace and positive cooperation. He said he had come to take up personal contacts with Mr. Kennedy. The problems cannot be solved at once, he said, but with good will, much can be achieved, even in a short time. We do hope that the good atmosphere of the peace-loving and neutral Austria will favorably influence the results of our forthcoming meeting with the President of the United States. The Washington Post described Khrushchev as beaming and jaunty, but the LA Times put a little bit of an edge on it. This is what the Times wrote in on the 2nd of June, 1961. Soviet Premier Khrushchev smiled and waved his way into a heavily guarded Vienna Friday night for an exchange of views with President Kennedy. Almost nobody smiled or waved back. We described what Kennedy's briefing books said about Khrushchev in episode one, but here are two more voices framing what the American president was facing. In France, as the president met with French President de Gaulle, Ambassador Averill Harriman, the nearly 70-year-old wily diplomat who had successfully steered the Laotian peace process, sidled up to the president at dinner. This account is from David Halberstam's The Best and Brightest. The gist of what Harriman said to Kennedy as he was in France on his way to Vienna was, go to Vienna. Don't be serious. Have some fun. Get to know him a little. Don't let him rattle you. He'll try to rattle you and frighten you. But don't pay any attention to it. Turn him aside gently. And don't try for too much. Remember that he's just as scared as you are. His previous excursion to the West, Western world in Europe did not go well. 
He is very aware of his peasant origins and of the contrast between Mrs. Khrushchev and Jackie. And there will be tension. His style will be to attack and then see if he can get away with it. Laugh about it. Don't get into a fight. Rise above it. Have some fun. Incidentally, Harriman, that is Averill Harriman, who had been the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union in the Roosevelt administration, the U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom, Secretary of Commerce, and finally director of the Mutual Security Agency in the Truman administration, was referred to as the crocodile because he tended to bite off abruptly proposals that seemed to him foolish or irrelevant. Here's a second voice on the question of Khrushchev. It's Eisenhower who labeled Khrushchev or who answered a question about Khrushchev this way when he was president. Sir, what did you think of Mr. Khrushchev? <laughs> well, he is a uh, he's a dynamic and arresting personality. He's a man that uh, used every possible uh, uh, debating uh, uh, method available to him. He uh, he's capable of uh, great uh, uh, flights of, uh, or you might say, of mannerism and of uh, almost uh, disposition from uh, one of, uh, of uh, almost negative, uh, difficult uh, attitude to the most uh, easy, affable, genial uh, type of discussion. I think that uh, American people sense as they went around that they were seeing some uh, man who is an extraordinary personality. There's no question about it. So now we're on June 3rd, 1961. It's the first day of the meeting between Kennedy and Khrushchev, and the weather matched the mood, according to the Christian Science Monitor, which wrote this. Unhappily, the weather changed overnight, and heavy rain from low, leaden gray clouds overhanging the city dulled the presidential arrival. Accounts of the meetings that are to follow are largely drawn from Michael Beschloss's The Crisis Years and Fred Kemp's Berlin 61, Kennedy Khrushchev in the Most Dangerous Place on Earth. You'll remember that the first handshake between Kennedy and Khrushchev didn't work so well for the photographers, so Kennedy told his interpreter, say to the, ch- say to the chairman that it is all right to shake hands if it is all right with him. After a second handshake, the president stepped backwards, thrust his hands into his coat pockets, and looked Khrushchev up and down. Later, he told his special assistant, Kenneth O'Donnell, after all the studying and talking I've done on him in the last few weeks, you can't blame me for being interested in getting a good look at him. And that's what these two men were doing, of course, at a very personal level, getting a good look at each other, playing it out with body language, the conflict between communism and capitalism. On the first day of the meeting, the two men recounted the last time they met when Khrushchev visited America in 1959. Khrushchev recalled mentioning that he had said to Kennedy when they first met in 1959 that he thought Kennedy was a young and promising man in politics. Now, said Khrushchev, he was pleased to meet him as president. I remember you said that I looked young to be a senator, said Kennedy, but I've aged a lot since then. Did I really say that to you, Khrushchev said? He then went on to say that young people always wanted to look older and that the old want to look younger. As a boy, he had been offended when people misjudged his youthful appearance. Then his hair had begun to turn gray at 22, which solved the problem. He would be happy to exchange ages or even split his years with the president, Khrushchev said. Khrushchev later wrote this about Kennedy in his diary. He impressed me as a better statesman than Eisenhower. Unlike Eisenhower, Kennedy had a precisely formulated opinion on every subject. 
Now I'm going to make, uh, take a bit of a detour here because this assessment by Khrushchev of Kennedy and with respect, and also comparing it to Eisenhower fascinates me. And it goes to this question not only of body language and how the leaders read each other, but of course how they read each other establishes the baseline against which their future actions are taken. Can I play this guy? Can I push this guy? Does this guy know what he's doing? Is he going to take actions against me? Okay, so why does this matter? Well, clearly Khrushchev put a premium on the fact that Kennedy had done his homework. He did not feel that same way about Eisenhower. Here's what Khrushchev, in his memoirs, wrote about Eisenhower. And I'll just read directly from what Khrushchev wrote. If I had to compare the two American presidents with whom I dealt, Eisenhower and Kennedy, the comparison would not be in favor of Eisenhower. Our people whose job it was to study Eisenhower closely have told me that they considered him a mediocre military leader and a weak president. This is the leader of the Allied forces, by the way, he's talking about here. He was a good man, but he wasn't very tough. There was something soft about his character. As I discovered in Geneva, he was much too dependent on his advisors. It was always obvious to me that being president of the United States was a great burden for him. Our conversations with the American delegations were generally constructive and useful for both parties, although neither side changed its position substantially on any of the issues facing us. The United States in those days refused to make even the most reasonably reasonable concessions because John Foster Dulles was still alive. It was he who determined the foreign policy of the United States, not President Eisenhower. Okay, so that's a big deal. Remember in the conversation about Kennedy and Kissinger with respect to visiting Mao, Kennedy took the power away from his Secretary of State, Rogers, and housed it inside the White House because he wanted it close to him. So here you have basically less than 20 years, well, 15 or so years, really, between the Eisenhower administration and the Nixon administration, both of them Republican, both of them connected by the fact that Nixon was in them, vice president in one, president in the other. And you have a complete switch in the way U.S. foreign policy is engaged in. You have one in which John Foster Dulles is considered more powerful than the president in the formulation of foreign affairs. And then you have Nixon and Kissinger running the whole show and completely cutting the Secretary of State out of the process and the pictures, as, as you'll remember from that Adobe Photoshop scramble that Kissinger had to engage in after the meeting with Mao. Back to Khrushchev's a journal here. He talks about Dulles. John Foster Dulles was still alive. It was he who determined the foreign policy in the United States, not President Eisenhower. To illustrate the statement, writes Khrushchev, I can, and I can describe something I observed at a plenary session in Geneva. The heads of all four delegations took turns chairing the plenary session. And when Eisenhower's turn came, there was Dulles at his right. I was on a Bulgannon's left, which put me right next to Dulles. Or maybe there was an interpreter between us. In any case, I watched Dulles making notes with a pencil, tearing them out of a pad, folding them up, and sliding them under President Eisenhower's hand. Eisenhower would then pick up the sheets of paper, unfold them, and read them before making a decision on any matter that came up. He followed this routine conscientiously, like a dutiful schoolboy, taking his lead from his teacher. It was difficult for us to imagine how a chief of state could allow himself to lose face like that in front of delegations from other countries. It certainly appeared that Eisenhower was letting Dulles do his thinking for him. So this is two things. I mean, it tells us what Khrushchev thinks about Dulles. I mean, about Dulles and Eisenhower, but that those meetings are past. What it tells us, though, is about the way in which Khrushchev evaluates people. This notion of losing face, this notion of how a world leader is supposed to act, 
Well, that gives us some baseline for the assessments he would make about Kennedy. And we know certainly from Kennedy's reaction foreshadowed in episode one, and which will really give you the full rounding out of this whole episode in, in volume three, episode three, Kennedy's sense of his own face, prestige, U.S. posture on the world stage ends up being a crucial element of the meeting itself. And then the corrective measures that Kennedy and the administration take to repair what happened in Vienna. But more about that later. We're at the meeting. First meeting, Vienna. It's at the American Embassy. Khrushchev, Kennedy. I've just read for you to you from the journals. But I got another thing to uncork for you at the meeting at the beginning of the meeting between Khrushchev and Kennedy. Khrushchev says this, and I'm reading now again from his journals. I joked with him, him of course being Kennedy, that we had cast the deciding ballot in his election to the presidency over that son of a bitch Richard Nixon. You got it right. Khrushchev tells Kennedy he gave him his election victory. Back to Khrushchev. When he asked me what I meant, I explained that by waiting to release the U-2 pilot Gary Powers until after the American election, we kept Nixon from being able to claim that he could deal with the Russians. Our ploy made a difference of at least half a million votes, which gave Kennedy the edge we needed. So, not only is this pertinent with respect to an era in which there is the allegation that the Russians were efforting to influence, not the allegation, well, he listened to the intelligence, it's agencies it's not an allegation it's a it's a fact but anyway russians have been interfering in american elections in this very specific way with this very specific echo also obviously the releasing of gary powers the youtube uh spy plane um pilot echoes also the iranians waiting to release the u.s hostages until ronald reagan was was uh, elected president a little, a tiny quick aside, all of this from Khrushchev's diaries comes from a very thick volume called Khrushchev Remembers, which is um, edited by Edward Crankshaw and translated and edited by Strobe Talbot, the former Deputy Secretary of State and Time Magazine columnist. This book has been on my shelf. I think it was my mother's. I'm pretty sure it was my mother's. It has been on my shelf for ages, forever. And why in heaven's name should I keep a book called Khrushchev Remembers? I have too many books already. And I have thought several times about selling it or handing it over to a library or doing something more beneficial with it than taking up space. And yet when I was writing this, I went over to Khrushchev Remembers and found that wonderful pearl about claiming credit for having elected Nixon. So it just means you can never throw away any books. Fred Kemp's Berlin 61 also has a, a version of this account in which Khrushchev's, um, uh, or in which Kennedy says about Khrushchev claiming credit for electing him, don't spread that story around, Kennedy said laughing. If you tell everybody that you like me better than Nixon, I'll be ruined at home. Okay, so we get past the funny stuff. And so by Kennedy's account, he started the conversation on the first day by saying they both had a special relationship for peace. Then Kennedy said, I propose to tell you what I can do and what I can't do, what my problems and possibilities are, and then you can do the same. According to Khrushchev, the president described the narrowness of his 1960 victory and his weakness in Congress, and asked him not to demand too many concessions because he could be turned out of the presidency. Khrushchev replied with a harangue on Berlin. He complained about the American insistence that, uh, that Germany be reunified and, and explained that his own son had been killed by the German army, Army Kennedy replied that his brother had been killed by the Germans. 
He had not come to Germany, said Kennedy, to talk about a war 20 years ago. The United States could not turn its back on the West Germans and pull out of Berlin, Kennedy said. We should also note, by the way, that Kennedy, in saying that he was constrained by the election in the United States, brings two things to mind. One, presidents used to be constrained by Congress. Two, you'll remember when President Obama was overheard telling um, Medvedev, the president of um, Russia at the time, to tell Putin that he was constrained by the upcoming election, but that he would have more flexibility after that election was over. So presidents, in negotiating with the, with the Russians, are always referring to the... To, and in diplomacy in general, they're always saying, oh, my hands are tied by my electorate or by Congress, which is a negotiating posture as much as anything else. The first meeting lasted for about an hour and a half, and then they broke for lunch. Foie gras, filet of beef, peppermint ice cream. At the end of lunch, Kennedy lit a cigar and threw the match behind Khrushchev's chair, and the Soviet leader feigned alarm and said, are you trying to set me on fire? He asked. Kennedy assured him he wasn't. Ah, said Khrushchev with a smile, a capitalist, not an incendiary. After lunch, although some accounts have this happening before lunch, anyway, in our account, it's going to be after lunch, Kennedy took Khrushchev for a stroll in the gardens, just accompanied by their interpreters. Reading the minutes of Eisenhower's Camp David conversation with Khrushchev in 1959, Kennedy had noted that the chairman became more temperate during a walk in the woods, away from the others in his entourage. As Kennedy and Khrushchev did the old pad down the lane, O'Donnell, Kennedy's aide, watched from the second floor window drinking a glass of Austrian beer. He noticed that Khrushchev was shaking his finger and snapping at the president like a terrier. To gain the early upper hand, the U.S. had wanted the first day's talks to be in the U.S. ambassador's residence, but it was Khrushchev, in his joking and his snapping and his command of his body, uh, that was making him behave like he was playing on his home field. At lunch, Kennedy had delivered a four-minute toast. Khrushchev had replied with ten minutes, and this is according again to Fred Kemp. The U.S. noticed something after the first day. From the opening exchange, Khrushchev was setting the tone for the conversations by answering Kennedy's short statements with these long, philosophical, windy road uh, responses. The two men pirouetted on the head of a pin for some time, for example, about Mao's expression that every communist must grasp the truth that political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Khrushchev pretended that Mao didn't really say that, as he temporarily took the position that military might was not related to the struggle for ideas. Kennedy then debated him back and forth. It was, again, a philosophical windy road. And you'll remember that this was very much like the Nixon-Mao conversation. When you're engaged in a conversation about the ideological struggle between the East and the West, everything blends together. So details of a specific debate blossom into philosophical puzzlers. So every conversation was like the question of Berlin itself, specific what happens to East Berlin, what happens to West Berlin, but also largely ideological. Berlin being the city of, of the ideological clash between capitalism and communism. So you can one minute be talking about a street, and the next you can be talking about the relationship between uh, labor and capital. Kennedy said what he wanted to avoid was a miscalculation between the U.S. and the Soviet Union that would cause both countries to go bonkers. Uh, miscalculation, Khrushchev? He didn't miscalculate. Khrushchev didn't like this word. He said, miscalculation, all I ever hear from your people in your news correspondence and your friends in Europe and every other place is the damn word miscalculation. The word was vague, Khrushchev said. What was the meaning of this word miscalculation? He kept repeating the word over and over again to Kennedy. Did the president want him to sit like a schoolboy with his hands on his desk? Khrushchev said, look, we're not going to 
the idea of communism would not stop at Soviet borders, but but that the Soviets would not be responsible for starting a war by mistake. He essentially was trying to argue that miscalculation was an attempt to get the Soviets to draw down under the idea they might wing off a missile by mistake. Um, and that he wasn't going to, and his view was, he wasn't going to let that word scare them. Let this notion that a, that a missile could be fired by mistake. If he was going to fire it, it was going to be on purpose. You ought to take that word miscalculation and bury it in cold storage and never use it again, said Khrushchev. Kennedy tried to explain what he meant by using the word. Referring to World War II, he said Western Europe had suffered because of its failure to foresee with precision what other countries would do. So Kennedy said what he was trying to do was get precision on both sides so that no sloppiness would lead to misunderstanding that would then lead to a war. And oh, by the way, misunderstanding, of course, comes into play with the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we'll get to someday. At the end of the first day meetings, a Soviet limo drove Khrushchev away, and Kennedy, who was a bit dazed, turned to Ambassador Thompson and asked, Is it always like this? Par for the course, said Thompson, who restrained himself from telling President Kennedy how much better things might have gone if he hadn't kept going down those ideological windy roads. There is some consternation in some circles that Donald Trump, in 2018, has promised to meet Vladimir Putin with only translators and no advisors. This, say his detractors, is the sign of some foul intent. But there are other reasons to have these kinds of exchanges with only translators, and one of those reasons is secrecy. In 1961, the L.A. Times wrote, Advisors sidelined as Kennedy tries for leak-proof summitry. And here's from that article about the first day of the summit that we've just talked about. After the first day of summit talks, it appears that President Kennedy has embarked on a new kind of summitry, intimate conversations with Premier Khrushchev in the presence of only professional interpreters. He may be reacting to the rash of contradictory and embarrassing leaks, which his closest advisors set in motion after the Cuban affair. No incident since he became president has made Mr. Kennedy matter, and he seems determined to go home from his trip as the one who really knows most of what went on. The LA Times then raised the same concerns that are being raised about the Trump-Putin meeting. The article continued, In discussing complex questions without expert advisors at their sides, however, both men run the grave risk of a misunderstanding, or a miscalculation, as Kennedy might call it over whatever common ground they might find. But President Kennedy runs the greater risk since he, his only witness, if an argument explodes, will be Khrushchev. Nobody in the Soviet Union will question whatever interpretation Khrushchev may later put on his conversation with Mr. Kennedy. This is the danger of President Kennedy's solo flight at the moment. At the end of the first day, not a lot has been achieved. The two men have joked with each other. They've had long, big philosophical discussions about the relationship between the ideological struggle between the East and the West and the relationship between those ideological struggles and the missiles stacking up in both of the countries. What was the purpose of those missiles, if not to be the vectors of those ideological struggles? And could the power of the thought struggle lead to actual nuclear exchanges? Lots of discussion, not much resolved. Then the poor fellas had to go to a state dinner, and the LA Times wrote uh, in a piece called First Lady Puts Stars in Khrushchev's Eyes. Mr. Khrushchev asked a photographer, won't you shake hands with Mr. Kennedy for us? With a grin, Khrushchev nodded towards the First Lady, stately and beautiful in a long white gown, and replied, I'd like to shake hands with her first. The occasion was the state dinner in the magnificent country residence of the former Habsburg emperors. Meeting Mrs. Kennedy for the first time, the tough and often belligerent communist leader looked like a smitten schoolboy. 
This is from Beschloss's The Crisis Wars. Jacqueline asked Khrushchev about the 19th century Ukraine. When Khrushchev told her that the region now had many more teachers than the Ukraine of the czars, she said, oh, Mr. Chairman, don't bore me with statistics. Khrushchev laughed, and for the moment, she found him almost cozy. Running out of things to say, she recalled hearing that one of the Soviet canine space travelers had had puppies. Why don't you send me one? she asked. While Jacqueline Kennedy and Khrushchev were discussing puppy love, the president was not faring as well with Mrs. Khrushchev. The Chicago Daily Tribune has this account of the interaction between the two during that first night's state dinner. By accident, President Kennedy almost sat in Mrs. Khrushchev's lap tonight. The scene was in the ceremonial room in the Schönbrunn Palace. Kennedy had been sitting on a sofa talking to Austrian President Adolf Scherf and Russian Premier Nikita Khrushchev. The ladies joined the gentlemen. The gentlemen rose. Attendants quickly drew up chairs and shifted the furniture about. Thinking the sofa was still beneath him, Kennedy started to sit down. He got as far as a half squat when he discovered, to his horror, that he was about to sit on Mrs. Khrushchev. He quickly shifted to a chair and smiled an apology to Mrs. Khrushchev. That's it for this edition of The Whistle Stop. We'll have a third volume of the final day of the meeting and then the extraordinary repercussions of the meeting in Vienna between Khrushchev and Kennedy on the next edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing editor of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald. One of the editors-in-chief, like attorneys general, of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Hansen has once again been helping me churn through the massive tonnage of research that our good friend Brian Rosenwald has stacked upon the Google Drive. She found some tremendous finds in the midst of that stack. And thanks, of course, to the whole crew at CBS Radio who hooked us up with this studio in which to record. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. I'm John Dickerson, a co-host of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. We'll see if we can button up Kennedy and Khrushchev and then pilot our ship to new waters. Thanks for listening.